Today I'm going to talk about uh, a sermon, I guess you could call it the two rocks. That'll be a theme. Um, I'm just talking about how God in all the long story that we heard today is present right here, right now um, with us. So this past spring, the senior class of the local Episcopal seminary took a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. When I thought about the biblical narrative, I've always imagined it really spread out. I imagine a long time ago, Abraham was called from Ur, given a son by God past the time anybody thought it would be possible. And then against all logic, asked to sacrifice that son on the mountain of Moriah. And I thought of all of that happening somewhere over there. I could also imagine King David, either in a fancy room with a harp or running from Saul in the Judean wilderness, crying out, how long, O Lord, like he did in Psalm 13. And I imagine that happening over there. And then I can imagine Jesus far in the future, sending out his disciples all over Judea to preach the kingdom of God, healing the sick, claiming sight to the blind, preaching that the kingdom of God is very near. They're taking neither staff nor money. And then I can imagine Jesus telling them that whoever welcomes you welcomes me. And then I can imagine Jesus rejected for that very message. The stone that was rejected who became the cornerstone, brought to the cross at Golgotha and killed for talking about and living the reign of God. And all that I can imagine happening over here. Because these different times are different places in my mind. They seem far apart. But when I got to go to Jerusalem, I was struck with how history is stacked on top of itself in places. And all the stories I've grown up hearing about the salvation of the world through the story of Israel, through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, it all happened right here, where we're standing. Right here. So it helped me to see in a new way how the same God who provided a ram in the thicket for Abraham and who raised Jesus from the dead is present now, here and now, even here in New Haven, at St. John's in Connecticut. When we came to the old city in Jerusalem, yeah, I was struck with how close together everything was, that the Temple Mount um, was only a 10-minute walk from the Church of the Holy Sepulchre where Jesus was crucified and buried, rose again. And so we visited both of those places on our trip, and I want to tell you about those visits. We had two guides. One was named Bishara, who held a lot of identities. He was a Palestinian, a Christian, and an Israeli citizen, which is a lot to hold. He worships at a local Anglican cathedral and has led Christian tours in the Holy Land for years. So wherever he went, he knew everybody. Everywhere he went, he was greeting and chatting with guards, uh, with monks and priests at the different churches we were going to, salespeople on the street, telling kids that they should be going to school and stop selling souvenirs. He's just blessing everyone that he met. So if we take Jesus seriously about saying that whoever welcomes a disciple welcomes him and receives the righteous person's reward, Bashar is handing out rewards left and right everywhere he goes. Our second guide was Reverend Nicholas Porter, who I later learned is actually a priest here in the Diocese of Connecticut, 
uh, but he runs an educational nonprofit called the Jerusalem Peace Builders that works with Palestinian and Israeli youth to educate them about the conflict, teach them conflict management skills, and bring them to summer camps here in the US to build relationships across difference. So in his work, he's built relationships with different religious groups uh, around Jerusalem and Israel-Palestine um, to cross difference. So he knew a lot of people. So one of the mornings of our pilgrimage, we were going to visit the Temple Mount and the Dome on the Rock. The Dome on the Rock is the second most holy site in Islam because they believe that Muhammad was taken there in a wild spiritual experience. And it's a really beautiful mosque that kind of towers over the old city with a brilliant golden dome and bright blue walls signifying where heaven meets earth. And it's built on top of the Temple Mount, the most holy site for Judaism, um, also a symbol of where heaven meets earth. So this is one of the most kind of politically fraught spots maybe in the world. Um, so Christian Jews are not often allowed to go into the Dome on the Rock. Um, Jewish settlers are often coming, um, being kind of threatening uh, to the Muslim security. And if an incident were to kind of happen there, there's always the threat of, of war. But because of the personal relationship between our guide and a person who worked in security there, we were able to get a tour um, of the Dome on the Rock, which I could not believe. I think recently they were opening it up to a few more kind of Christian tours like that. And I didn't really know what I was going to see. So as we got into this, the Temple Mount complex, went up to the Dome on the Rock, and we're welcomed in. We get inside the mosque, and there's this big rock in the middle, figures. And the Muslim head of security began talk about, talking about Abraham coming to the Mount Moriah to sacrifice his son. And I realized that right here was Mount Moriah. This is it. Mount Moriah was where the temple was. That this spot is where Abraham was willing to give up his own son and where God provided a ram in the bush. Right where I was standing. On another day of the trip, we also visited the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. I'd always thought we did not know exactly where Jesus was crucified. And I'd always thought that the tomb where Jesus was laid was some ways away from the place where he was crucified. But the first morning of the pilgrimage, I had jet lag and I woke up really early. And it was a Sunday morning. And Father Nick had told us that the church opens at 4 a.m. So around five, I got up and I went there from where we were staying on the Via Doloroso, a way that remembers where Jesus carried the cross. And I came to the church, and I didn't really know anything about it at this point either. I didn't know the story of the place. But as I walked into the church, there are these steep stairs to the right um, that lead up to a chapel. And to my left, I heard chanting and went over and saw this big tomb. And there were Greek Orthodox priests chanting, a priest in the tomb and a priest outside, and Armenian Orthodox on the other. Um, yeah, singing praise to God about the resurrection. And I went back up to those stairs, and underneath them, there's this glass cover of this chossy-looking rock. And I didn't know what it was. And I went up top, and there are these two chapels with many icons and different art styles um, about the crucifixion. And to my right, a big picture of, again, Abraham 
knife raised, ready to sacrifice Isaac, and an angel stopping him, providing. So I didn't know it at the time, but when we got the official tour, Father Nick and Bashara came with us and are greeting all the different priests who are from six different denominations that help manage this space collectively. Always getting into fights, but kind of holding the peace together. Um, that the thing that stuck with me most is hearing the story that this spot, which was found um, by Helena, the mother of Constantine back in the fourth century, as local Christians showed her where they had been remembering the spot of Jesus' death. Um, having explained to me that the whole site was a quarry. So the, the hill that was Golgotha, that this chapel that I had been on, that I didn't realize was where Jesus was crucified, um, was a hill of rock that had been left in the quarry because the water, the stone there had, had water damage. So it was literally stone that the builders rejected had become the chief cornerstone. That makes sense? There was a quarry and it was stone the builders rejected become the chief cornerstone. And then the tombs were carved into the wall of the quarry. So they just took Jesus' body just right next door. And it all happened right there. So I was able to sit there for a while until a Catholic mass started, and then I left. Um, we also got to go to the Western Wall, the remaining wall of the Temple Mount with stones from the Second Temple period. And this is currently the most holy site for the Jews and the closest that the public can get to the site of the temple. So many come here to pray with a hand on the wall or looking up at it. And anyone of any religion can come to this spot as long as you ritually wash your hands and cover your head. And you can go right up to the wall and pray. And there was something about praying there that was an encounter with the immensity of God. As this wall towers up above you, the solidness of the stone. As I put my hand on it, there's a certain electricity to it. To think that this is the spot where God had acted in history, had called Abraham, had raised up King David, worked with Solomon to build the temple, where the temple had been destroyed and all hope was lost, and then where it was rebuilt, where Jesus had walked. That here we are, praying, and it all happened right here. So we may not be in Jerusalem, but we are in New Haven and in a church dedicated to the same God who's been faithful over so many generations. The early European settlers of this area saw this harbor in the land between East Rock and West Rock, and they saw their own kind of promised land. They bought the land from the Quinnipiac tribe in exchange for protecting their weakened tribe from the Mohegan. And they created a new haven, a sanctuary. They maybe had a limited vision of that promise. It wasn't a haven to the Quinnipiac who were kind of forced to the other side of the river and declined. Um, but over the years, it has been a haven for many immigrants. Yeah, first British settlers, Dutch, Italians, Poles, African-Americans. Now people from all over the world. Um, that it's been a place of refuge. So we have our own story of two rocks, maybe stranger stories. Um, we have West Rock. I don't know if you guys know the, the story of Judges Cave, but that was a haven for three judges named Dixwell, Whaley, and Goff. 
And these three judges fled here when Charles II became king in England again because they had signed the death warrant for Charles I. So they fled here for safety um, from the British and hid out in those caves on top of West Rock for safety. East Rock is also a haven for many, a place to walk and get out of the city. But it started, has a very strange story, it started with some false promises. Our scripture talks about some prophets, but there's also some false ones out there. So the whole park used to be owned by a man named Milton Stewart, who lived alone atop the hill and would build boats on top of the hill, a sort of Noah figure. And he would sled them down in the winter to the water. So one year he started proclaiming to everyone that the Long Island Sound would raise up and flood the whole area as God's judgment. And the only way to survive was to turn from your sins and come and join him on top of East Rock. Needless to say, it didn't happen. He was sort of laughed out of town. And the city bought the land from him using eminent domain, and that's why it's a park for us now. So we get false prophets as real as real ones. And all of those stories, strange as they were, happened right here. We're caught up in a story bigger than ourselves. So New Haven carries stories of folly and faith and God's faithfulness. And the same God who's present in Jerusalem is present with us. So as we face issues today in New Haven that God cares about, we don't face them alone. One of these issues um, on my heart and mind this week and that has been in the news a lot recently is the issue of immigration. Just a few days ago, we saw in the news a boat full of 750 migrants from Pakistan, Syria, Palestine, and Egypt capsized in the Mediterranean off the boat at the coast of Greece, killing hundreds. The news is critical of Greek authorities who knew about their situation, but said that they were moving towards Italy, so they did nothing. They didn't take responsibility. Here in New Haven, we're also talking about immigration. There's been arguments on the Board of Alders about letting immigrants um, have more public representation. And in a mayoral, mayoral debate here in New Haven the other day, candidates debated what they would do if a bus full of migrants was dropped off here in New Haven. They each had different ideas, but they all discussed the need to have relationships in place with local nonprofits, housing resources, state and federal resources to meet the need. They discussed the need to have those relationships, the same kind that Bishara and Father Nick had across difference to prepare us to deal with the kind of conflicts and troubles of the day. So the same issues that God cared about back then, God cares about now. So as you come in here today to a church that is a place to remember what God has done through history, it's a bit of a dangerous move for you takes you out of yourself into a story much bigger than your own. You come into the presence of God, the creator of heaven and earth, God who longs for justice and who shows mercy, a God who advocates for the orphan and the widow and who commands us to care for immigrants. You come into the presence of God who has revealed God's self in Christ, who spent his life healing the sick and restoring the sight of the blind, and who died to free us from the law of sin and death so that we could live by grace. So maybe this church could be a place that could also welcome strangers. And as you go out, maybe you can be part of having those relationships, blessing others, 
and welcoming unsuspecting people. I don't know what you have been going through this week or what may be causing you anxiety or weighing you down, but as we worship here together, and as you go out of the doors this week, I just want to leave you with what Jesus told his disciples before he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is near, right here. See, I think being a disciple is not initially some mystical thing beyond our reach, something experience that we're waiting for or kind of a miraculous occurrence. Those can happen. But I think it was Dallas Willard who wrote that being a disciple at first is just like being a student or a carpenter or a plumber. You've either committed yourself to learning the craft or you haven't. You either are a disciple or you aren't. You've either given your life to learning and following Jesus and being part of this bigger story or you haven't. You may have been doing this for years, be kind of deep in it, or you may have just started and maybe don't feel like a very good one just let yet. But either way, we're disciples and we're learning and walking together. So as you go out, I invite you to remember that you go out with the presence of God, that God has chosen you. The same God who provided a ram in the bush for Abraham, who raised Jesus from the dead, and who calls us to offer a haven for others just as he has offered one to us. And you can trust that the Lord will provide for you. And that we don't walk this road by our own strength. You carry the very presence of God in you. So as you go out, remember what Jesus said. That whoever welcomes you, welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me, welcomes the one who sent me. Amen.